Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about two of Bach's Christmas cantatas, BWV 91, Praised Be You Jesus Christ in English translation, and BWV 110, May Our Mouths Be Filled With Laughter. We actually had a brief look at a different Christmas cantata, BWV 63, Christians Engraved This Day, some time ago in episode 2, which dealt with cantatas composed for the court of Weimar. But the two we're going to examine today came along a bit later in Bach's career and offer up rather different perspectives on this important day in the church year. We're going to begin with Praised Be You, Jesus Christ, a chorale cantata, the text for three of six movements coming directly from the hymn by Martin Luther, and the other three movements anonymous paraphrases of other stanzas from the same hymn. The first performance in an earlier version was in 1724, and a second performance with some revisions in the fifth and sixth movements in 1731 or 1732. Three more performances of the work, the last in 1746 or 1747, have also been documented. As usual, I'm using the translations provided by Francis Brown from the BachCantatas.com site. The text for the opening chorus in G major and in common time is, Praised be you, Jesus Christ, that you have been born as a man from a virgin, this is true, at which the host of angels rejoices. Lord, have mercy. The opening chorus, scored quite fully for horns, three oboe strings, continue and timpani, begins with a regal and very rousing instrumental ritonello, featuring a trio of oboes and a very active pair of horns. The initial theme charges up the scale in 16th notes from D, the fifth of the scale, undulates back down briefly, and then continues on its way to the upper octave, overshooting the field slightly before returning to the upper D. It then continues its ascending motion by leaping up a fourth. From this initial high point, the first oboe begins a descending fanfare-like arpeggio figure in eighth notes, based on the tonic chord, ending up with a familiar rhythmic figure of an eighth followed by two sixteenths which, mixed in with some sixteenth note runs, fills in the gaps as the oboe takes its triadic pattern even higher. Here's a simplified version showing only the first oboe's part. The next important thematic idea, which overlaps with the first, comes from the horns which begin with a long sustained tone and then burst into a series of something like slow-down measured trills in thirds, starting on D and moving down by step and then back up again. It's a type of horn figure that Bach has used in other celebratory-sounding works, and it's very effective here. Here's a simplified example. Taken one idea at a time, this all seems simple enough, but actually the texture gets quite complex very quickly, since the oboe theme I just quoted is imitated just half a measure later by the second oboe, half a measure after that by the third oboe, and then in turn by first violins, second violins, and violas. And by measure five, all of this is overlapping with the horn's contribution, which is echoed quickly by the first violins. These ideas continue with the horn's thematic idea increasingly dominating until the voices enter in measure 13. Let's hear that much. Mm -hmm. 
The sopranos enter first with Luther's chorale melody in half notes halfway through measure 13, still in G major, with the other voices close on their heels. The basses begin with a flurry of ascending 16th notes, based initially on the oboe's original entrance, and the ideas quickly passed around to the other voices, often doubled by the strings, and soon thereafter to the continual bass. As the first phrase of the chorale comes to an end, we've modulated to A minor, and the horns enter again with their sustained tones, marking the beginning of the second orchestral ritornello. At five bars, this one is quite a bit shorter, but makes use of many of the same thematic ideas I pointed out earlier, often in new configurations. It also modulates back to G major for the chorus's next entrance. As the next phrase of the chorale, that you have been born as a man, unfolds in the sopranos, the other voices concentrate initially not on motives drawn from those 16th note passages of the opening ritonello, but from the later arpeggio passages in 8th notes. Still, it's not long before they once again break into 16th note passages, sometimes with fragments of imitation between the voices. Let's hear an excerpt starting from the first choral entrance through the third ritonello which, although it uses many of the same thematic ideas, is more active than the first two, tonally speaking, moving towards C major before some unexpected chromatic movement in the bass line heads us in the direction of D minor. My example actually took us a little into the third choral entrance with the third phrase of the chorale, the text being, from a virgin, this is true, just to demonstrate that all choral entrances, although similar in the soprano, since the chorale melody continues to be declaimed there in longer note values, are not necessarily identical in other respects. The third choral entrance, for example, has the altos, tenors, and basses moving in somewhat slower rhythmic figures, employing eighths and quarter notes rather than strings of sixteenths, but showing more obvious and consistent imitation between the parts. The next orchestral ritonello is in D major and exhibits the fullest texture of any we've encountered to this point, and the choral entrance that follows it, at which the host of angels rejoices, features the altos, tenors, and basses starting out by more or less replicating their initial entrance, albeit in the new key. The final ritonello does not offer much that is new thematically, but does head us toward C major and even, for a brief instant, C minor. But the final choral entrance on the last line of the text, Lord have mercy, is new. The sopranos sustain the last note of their phrase for five entire measures, while the voices below introduce new syncopated motives, even as the orchestra continues to repeat their by now very familiar motives from the opening ritonello. 
the final Ricinello brings back familiar ideas for the last time while it heads us back to G major for the final cadence. The text for the second movement, which combines conventional recitative style with excerpts from the chorale, is The splendor of the highest glory, the exact likeness of God's being, has at the appointed time chosen a place to dwell. The only child of the eternal Father, the eternal light born from light, is now found in the manger. What here the power of love has done in our poor flesh and blood? And was this then not cursed, doomed, lost? Eternal goodness has clothed itself. Thus it is chosen for blessedness. Craig Smith, in one of his many useful and enlightening commentaries on the Bach Cantata website, has remarked in respect to the rather dark parenthetical references to being cursed, doomed, and lost, that this is another example that, as Smith put it, in Bach's day, Christmas was not as oppressively cheery as it is today. The combination of recitative and chorale, melody and text, heard here, has been employed by Bach elsewhere on a number of occasions. In some cases, this results in a somewhat problematic continuity, the quotations from the chorale interrupting the flow of the recitative, which is to some extent supposed to embody the rhythms of natural speech. But in this case, the flow seems natural enough, perhaps because the soprano only quotes the actual chorale melody for the first phrase, and thereafter frequently provides a more melodically active counter-melody to the chorale melody quoted in the continual accompaniment. Here's a brief excerpt. A tenor aria follows, accompanied by the three oboes we heard first in the opening orchestral ritonello, and which naturally dominate the instrumental sonority here. The text is, God for whom the orbit of the earth is too small, whom neither the world nor heaven can contain, is willing to be in the narrow manger. There appears for us this eternal light, therefore henceforth God will not hate us since we are children of this light. The aria is in A minor and 3-4 time. The orchestral ritonello, which introduces the melodic material which the tenor will shortly expand on, relies heavily on dotted 8-16th rhythms and some bold ascending leaps which seem slightly incompatible with the text to come. Here is the almost militant-sounding opening ritonello. Of course, the emphasis here is not on the infant Jesus lying gently in the manger, but rather on the fact that it is an all-powerful God who has reduced himself to this vulnerable state for the benefit of mankind. The tenor enters in bar 9 with the first line of text and a melody closely modeled 
after the Ritonello's first four bars, although embellished with a modest vocal flourish. After a brief Ritonello, he re-enters, still in A minor, repeating the text, but employing a variant of his opening statement, and adding the line, is willing to be in the narrow manger, with a new melodic idea, as the music moves in the direction of E minor. Let's hear that much. The ritonello that follows develops ideas from the initial ritonello with somewhat fuller sonorities. The middle section, based on the text, There appears for us this eternal light, begins with a familiar motive in the tenor line, but on the word eternal, stretches out into a long note covering more than three measures, although the oboes continue to spin out familiar dotted eighth sixteenth note rhythms around it. And as the text repeats the reference to eternal light, and refers to the fact that God will not hate us since we are children of light, we move from E minor and A minor to the brighter major keys of G major and C major via sequential activity. After another brief ritonello employing familiar materials, the previous text returns, although the mood is somewhat different this time. This is the first melodic idea we've encountered that really sounds new, although in fact, it continues to rely on some of the same dotted 8 16th note rhythmic motives we've heard earlier. Harmonically, we cover new ground as well, beginning in D minor and moving quickly toward B flat major, quite a distance from our original key. The ritonello that follows continues this new mood to some extent, although its repeated motives sound a bit more familiar. Let's hear a part of this middle section. <laughs> After the next ritonello, we hear a partial return of the original theme in the tenor, accompanied by the first section of text, but it's in D minor. However, a brief ritonello quickly takes us back to the original tonic of A minor, and we then hear a virtual recapitulation of the opening tenor statement, albeit enriched by a more elaborate vocal climax sweeping up the scale. And the final instrumental ritonello also recapitulates its opening statement to take us to the end of the aria. A bass recitative follows, with a text, O Christendom, come now, prepare yourself to welcome the Creator among you. The mighty Son of God has descended and comes to you as a guest. Ah, that your heart be moved by this love. He comes to you in order to lead you through this veil of sorrow to his throne. The recitative begins in the key of G major, accompanied by strings as well as continual, in an expressive but somewhat conventional manner. 
But when the more speech-like patterns break into the more measured arioso style, we encounter some remarkable melodic and harmonic activity. At the words, to lead you through this veil of sorrows, in a shift to adagio, we hear a marvelous musical depiction of the somewhat tortuous path through those sorrows, as the melody begins to ascend mostly by half-step, while the bass line begins a slower-moving chromatic descent, echoed and doubled at times by the strings above it. It's all very logical, harmonically speaking, and most of the progression is easily understood in F minor, but the effect is still striking, with the final two bars played instrumentally, perhaps the most remarkable, beginning with an augmented chord approached as a deceptive cadence and ending on a half cadence on C major. Here is the entire recitative. The next movement in E minor, a duet between soprano and alto, is also remarkable, less for its sinuous chromaticism than for its rhythmic persistence in the orchestral accompaniment, balanced against the yearning quality of the duetting voices. The opening ritonello pits a stepwise marching bass line against an equally militant motive in the violins, characterized by groups of repeated dotted notes, in this case dotted 16th and 32nd notes, initially characterized by a series of bold, descending leaps between beats. As usual, it's easier to hear than to describe. The aforementioned Craig Smith refers to this repeated figure as an insistent and stumbling string figuration, which is a moving portrayal of Christ's humility. While that interpretation certainly lines up with the text, which I'll provide in a minute, I'm not sure I hear this figure as suggesting stumbling. It seems to me to stride ahead rather purposefully throughout most of the movement. But it certainly is demonstrative of a single-minded dedication to purpose, which reminds us, in typical Lutheran fashion, that Christ's birth, as wonderful an event as it is, is just a precursor to his main function on earth, that is, to suffer and die as a propitiation for humankind's sins. When, after four bars, the voices enter, the alto begins their interaction by leaping up a fifth to a sustained note on the dominant, 
the soprano answers a beat later with a leap up a minor sixth to a C, which is sharply dissonant against the suspended note by the alto. Although the voices interact in other ways throughout this duet, these poignant suspensions, which occur first on the word arma or poverty, occur frequently and set the tone for the entire duet. The entire text for the first section of this is the poverty that God takes upon himself has appointed for us an everlasting salvation, the abundance of the treasures of heaven. We'll hear the first section beginning with the entrance of the voices and including multiple, often varied restatements of the original theme, the intervening march-like ritonellos, and various modulations along the way. Right at the end of my excerpt, you heard the beginning of the middle section, initially beginning somewhat surprisingly on a D minor chord, but quickly hinting at a series of other tonal centers within the next few measures. The text is, His human existence makes you like the glory of the angels and places you among the choir of angels. We're immediately presented with two distinctive new thematic ideas. The soprano leads us into the middle section with a distinctive repeated syncopation figure consisting of repeated 8th, 16th, 8th notes, short, long, short, moving down by step, while the alto begins a chromatic ascent in quarter notes against it. The two switch parts as we continue to drive through new tonal areas, with the march-like figure heard earlier popping up regularly in the accompaniment. 
Soon, alto and soprano are trading off 16th note scale fragments as we head toward F-sharp minor. There, the opening ritonello is represented, and soprano and alto again interact with their suspension-based dissonances as we move, rather unexpectedly, through G minor and C minor. But this is not a true recapitulation of the original duet, and before long we return to the two ideas which began the middle section, the repeated syncopation figure and the rising chromatic line, while the persistent march theme from the introduction continues to make its presence felt. Finally, we cadence on E minor, and the da capo sends us back to repeat the entire first section. Here's an excerpt from the first part of the middle section. It's really quite a duet, the rhythmic persistence of the initial ritonello theme vying with a passionately lyrical interaction between soprano and alto, all of this enhanced by the wide-ranging, sometimes even remote, key changes. After this duet, a luxuriant one in many different ways, the harmonization of the crowd which concludes the cantata is a simple one, although richly scored. It's an impressive Christmas cantata, even though only the first movement seems unabashedly celebratory. We turn now to another cantata for Christmas Day. May our mouths be filled with laughter. BWV 110, first performed in Leipzig in 1725. The text comes from various sources, including Psalm 126, Jeremiah 10.6, and the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Other movements have been attributed to Georg Christian Lems, but other sources have also been suggested, including J.S. Bach himself. The first movement is an adaptation of the first movement of the very well-known Orchestral Suite in D Major, BWV 1069, which we took a look at in episode 14. It's extravagantly scored with three trumpets and three oboes, as well as strings, timpani, and continuo. It's in a French overture style, and the voices enter when the meter shifts from duple to 9-8 and the fugal section begins. 
The text is, May our mouths be filled with laughter and our tongues full of praise, for the Lord has done great things for us. The first and second endings and repeat heard in the original orchestral suite version are missing in this cantata version, and the oboe parts are rewritten in the first few bars of the fugal section. But more important, of course, is the addition of the chorus. The altos lead us into the fugue with a new motive not found in the original score. It's completely compatible with the already existing motives taken from the original version, but does add a new layer of melodic activity into the mix. The tenors pick up this new line from the altos, answering it a third lower. Meanwhile, the normal fugal activity is carried on simultaneously in the oboes and strings. In fact, it's pretty remarkable how independently the voices proceed. To be sure, they link up rhythmically from time to time with the different layers of instrumental activity, but never do we encounter much in the way of direct imitation or doubling. We do, however, get a real sense of laughter, as a number of commentators have pointed out, due to the extended, mostly triplet-based melismas on the first syllable of the word lachens, or laughter, heard at times in all parts at once. 25 bars into the fugal section, we encounter a senza ripieno section, where the doubling voices drop out and we're left with a solo quartet, introducing a new, and at least initially, more slowly developing thematic idea, which starts and stops a bit before accumulating some momentum. This corresponds in the original movement to where the texture thinned down to the three oboes and bassoon. It does the same here as well, although this is now overlaid with the entirely new lines of solo soprano, alto, and tenor. We'll just listen to the fugal section where the voices enter through the section where the soloists take over. course returns, it does so with the same material we heard earlier, although introduces some new ideas along the way and occasionally glances back at some of the thematic ideas the soloists introduced. Needless to say, we modulate around a bit, and the high level of textural complexity remains until one member of the solo quartet makes another appearance, the bass, who was, you may recall, left out of the first solo quartet passage. He begins with motives which echo the soloist quartet but goes on with a series of sequentially repeated phrases which eventually take us pretty far afield tonally. (laughs) ¶¶ 
By the time the whole chorus re-enters, we're back in D major and on familiar ground, building effectively to an impressive climax in the final measures of the fugal section before we return to the opening section played by the orchestra, somewhat rescored, and with a long dominant pedal which breaks off only three measures before the end. The opening chorus is followed by a tenor aria with the text, You thoughts and you senses, leap up from here, climb quickly to heaven, and consider what God has done. He has become man, and this only so that we may become children of heaven. The aria in common time in B minor begins with a recorder duet, the first four bars unfolding in a fugal pattern, employing a figuration-based melody of repeated sixteenth notes. After the first four bars, the relationship between the two parts is less precise, but still marked by the canonic echoing of motives back and forth, sometimes in inversion and eventually even including the continuo bass. Here is the opening ritonello. The tenor melody does not reproduce the recorder's introductory melody, which continues in varied form in the accompaniment, but it is clearly influenced by it. And while Bach does not in any dramatic way rise to the bait represented by the reference to thoughts climbing to heaven, the melody does ascend a sixth higher in the first two bars before trailing off slightly in the third. After a brief interlude, the tenor returns, initially quoting from the recorder's opening figuration pattern but then going on to sustain notes on the word senses, and subsequently putting particular emphasis on the word bedenkt, a reference to considering what God has done. We'll hear from the tenor entrance to that point. Thank you. 
By the end of the passage you just heard, we have arrived at D major, after brief stop-offs at other keys, and Bach continues melodically in much the same vein, although a few new expressive details are added. It's not until after another instrumental interlude, once again featuring the two recorders exchanging motives, that we encounter the second part of the text, He has become man, and this only so that we may become children of heaven along with some new melodic contours and a slight change in mood, even the introduction of some tension-producing diminished seventh chords. Er wird Mensch und dies allein, dass wir Himmelskinder sein. Er wird Mensch und dies allein. There is no return to the first section of the text, and a return of the recorder's wistful duet brings the movement to a close. The tenor aria is followed by the only recitative in the cantata, a brief but expressive one, accompanied by strings as well as continuo, in which the bass sings, No one is like you, Lord, you are great and your name is great, and you can show this by your deeds. We'll move on to the alto aria which follows it, in F-sharp minor in 3-4 time, it's a highly atmospheric one, thanks both to the emotional alto line and the oboe d'amore whose sinuous and sometimes faintly exotic melody weaves in and around it. The text is, Ah, Lord, what is a child of man that you should seek his salvation with so much pain? A worm whom you curse when hell and Satan are around him, but also your son whom soul and spirit through love call their inheritance. The mood of the first section is understandably gloomy, even tortured in places, and this is evident immediately from the opening notes of the instrumental introduction. The oboe de more melody, starting on the fifth of the scale, begins by leaping up an expressive minor sixth. It then peaks on an accented dissonance before moving down the scale. The next measure repeats the basic idea up a fourth, and the third bar begins with a diminished seventh, one of many sprinkled throughout the opening melodic statement all of this adding to the generally morose tone. The mood does lighten a bit in the next four bars, where Bach introduces a series of triplet-derived rhythms, and we move to the relative major key of A. But the reprieve is short-lived, and although the triplet-based rhythmic figures continue, we are soon headed back to F-sharp minor, although a deceptive cadence on the way there puts the matter in doubt for a few seconds. Here is the instrumental introduction. 
The alto begins with a melody derived from the opening introduction, but yields after just four bars back to the oboe, which brings back one of its more ornate, triplet-based ideas from that introduction. The alto then returns, repeating its first phrase note for note, but this time moving on to a new melodic idea, although initially repeating the same opening line of text. Finally, she moves on to the next line, a worm whom you curse when hell and Satan are around him. Just as in the instrumental introduction, the harmonic context had briefly begun to brighten with a shift to A major as the alto had finished repeating her first line of text. But when the worm itself is referenced, the alto melody drops a tritone, a diminished fifth, that traditional diabolical interval, and the rest of the phrase, which again features a prominent deceptive cadence and chromatic motion familiar from the oboe's opening statement, is considerably less comfortable. We'll hear from the alto's entrance to that point. After another instrumental interlude, we have a somewhat longer-lasting brightening of tone, as the text changes to, but also your son, whom soul and spirit, through love, call their inheritance. As we move temporarily to A major, and the alto's vocal line introduces a new, stepwise, four-note phrase which initially descends, but mostly thereafter ascends, as the alto repeats, and also your son but we have by no means completely abandoned the thematic materials of the first section of the aria. The oboe continues its sinuous, often triplet-based weavings as accompaniment to the alto's melodic line. We hear the same deceptive cadence we've experienced several times before, and then we end securely back in F-sharp minor before the DS sign takes us back to the original instrumental introduction to close the movement. 
Here is the second, somewhat more optimistic section. The next movement in A major and 12A time, a traditional Christmas movement suggesting the serenity of the manger scene. It's a duet between soprano and tenor with the familiar Christmas text, Glory to God on high and peace on the earth and goodwill toward men. The accompaniment is provided by Continuo alone and is based mostly on a series of triads, ascending and descending, outlined by the Continuo bass. It's a pretty sparse accompaniment as written and contrasts sharply with the rich and interesting sonorities we've heard to this point. But the keyboard player in a situation like this is likely to fill in some of the gaps with melodic fragments rather than simply realizing the chords on a beat-by-beat basis. And the relationship between the two voices is particularly euphonious, as you might expect, in a movement of this type, abounding in parallel sixths. The soprano begins with an ascending triad in a trill, which echoes the opening continuo bass motive, here played by a cello, before starting a long descending sequence of undulating sixteenth notes. The tenor imitates that line at the octave two beats later, resulting quickly in an almost seamless flow of sixteenth notes, sung mostly in parallel sixths. Soon the actual imitation breaks off, but the exchange of motives, sometimes varied, sometimes initiated by the soprano, sometimes by the tenor, continues throughout much of the movement. We'll hear the first part of the first section, Glory to God in the Highest.
As you can hear, that opening motor returns as we move into other keys. Some new ideas are introduced as well, including the long sustained tone heard first in the tenor and a little later in the soprano as we approach the end of the section. In the next section, with the text, And Peace on Earth, we experience some relief from the undulating sixteenths as the melody, harmonized in thirds, stretches out a bit, creating some gentle, almost nostalgic dissonances. But soon we're back to the flowing sixteenth notes and phrases echoing back and forth between soprano and tenor. But there is more gentle dissonance to be found here as well, as we hear a series of suspensions set up between the voices. It's actually one of the most effective passages in the movement. Here's the passage in question. final section of the text, And Goodwill Toward Men, calls forth some new, somewhat more robust ideas. We start out as usual with a bit of imitation, the soprano leading the way. It doesn't sustain for long before sequential repetition takes hold in both parts, and then more parallel sixths and thirds as the voices join together homophonically for the last iteration of Goodwill Toward Men. Here's the final section of the duet. The final bass aria in D major and in common time is a rousing heroic one, somewhat military in nature because of the many fanfare motives in both the orchestra, most notably in the trumpets naturally, and the vocal line, all of this being well suited to the opening text, which is, Awaken you veins and limbs, and sing such songs of joy that are pleasing to our God. Here's the introductory ritonello and the first entrance of the bass soloist. Thank you. 
der gleichen Freude wieder, der gleichen Freude wieder und sieht der gleichen Freude As you can hear, the main melodic ideas presented in the Ritonello are largely limited to triadic arpeggios, scale lines, and broken third patterns in 16th notes, superimposed over a somewhat limited harmonic vocabulary, consisting of multiple repetitions of the tonic chord with an occasional dominant thrown in, before a couple of sequences finally inject a little tonal variety. When the bass enters, we hear many of the same ideas in the vocal line, although it proceeds more in stately groups of eighth notes, only occasionally breaking into sixteenth note flourishes. When the second part of the text is introduced, and you, you devoted strings, should prepare for him such praise as delights heart and spirit, the orchestral sonorities not surprisingly default to the strings, although a solo trumpet does make a demure entrance at one point. While the first section of the aria came to a stop on the dominant of the key, A major, this new section soon declares itself to be in B minor, the relative minor in the key. The bass's melodic phrases are a bit more stately sounding here, but still rely to some extent on triadic arpeggios unfolding in a series of sequential repetitions or near repetitions, and with a long melisma on the words delighting the spirit being one of the high points, along with a dramatically rising bass line, not unlike one featured in the first section of the aria as well. There's a little more tonal wandering in this middle section, as one might expect, but we end securely in F sharp minor at the end of it, only to start up again, after a brief pause, in our original key of D major, as the orchestral ritonello returns with a varied repeat of its opening statement, and the bass launches once again into a virtual recreation of its original melody, lacking only its movement toward the dominant in the closing measures. Here is the middle section and the ritonello leading into the varied repeat of the opening section. Und ihr, ihr andachtsvollen Zeiten, ihr andachtsvollen Zeiten, sollt ihm ein solches Lob bereiten, ihr andachtsvollen Zeiten, ihr andachtsvollen Zeiten, ihr andachtsvollen Zeiten. It's certainly a joyful and celebratory aria worthy of the season, but the cantata actually concludes, as usual, with a traditional chorale melody harmonized by Bach in a full orchestral treatment. 
The text is, Alleluia, God be praised. We all sing from the bottom of our hearts. God has made such joy today that we can never forget. The second cantata, BWV 110, is perhaps a bit more conventional than BWV 91 in its style and its message for a Christmas cantata, but both are worthy examples of Bach's mature cantata style. That's all for this episode. For our next, we'll return to Bach's contemporary, Telemann, this time focusing on the composer's instrumental music. <laughs> 